0: Thank you very much for coming. Uh, over to you. Um, thank you very much, John. Um, this makes me slightly uneasy. and that usually, when John introduces a speaker, there is a little joke about the person uh, as part of the introduction. Now I fear it will come at the end, and I have no chance to respond. Um, but thank you very much, and thanks for having me. Thanks uh, all of you for coming out. Um, I'm looking forward to to hearing your um, comments in response to this presentation I'll give in which um, I have rather, words with immodestly, not being afraid of heroic failure, taking on this sort of big question, what's happening to our media? Um, and not looking to at a single country, but looking at um, sort of big questions and big trends about media developments in a range of eight different countries over a period of 10 years. Um, and if you will, the premise is very simple, um, and one I think that's shared by most people in this room, though we shouldn't uh, accept it as uncontroversial, which is that, Journalism matters uh, for democracy. It's integral to how popular government has come to function in the 20th century, and hence we need to understand how journalism is changing to to, uh, understand how democracies will evolve in the 21st century. Um, The countries I'll speak about in particular, or I'll use examples from dealt with in details in in the report, same title that's being published today by the Worlds Institute, um, are six um, affluent democracies. Maybe Finland, France, Germany, Italy, the UK, and the US. And then two emerging economies, Brazil and in India, to provide sort of a counterpoint and a challenge to the tendency to discuss journalism solely within the framework of sort of affluent um, Western democracies, if you will. Three um, very basic points before I sort of dive into the big questions and big trends, if you will, um, that are empirically the most important, but sometimes forgotten conversations about the state of journalism today that I just wanted to put out there as a starting point. Today, in 2012, most professional journalism is still being funded by revenues from offline uh, media, uh, legacy media organizations uh, like newspaper companies that don't like to be called newspaper companies anymore because they also do many other things, uh, but make most of their money off print, uh, and broadcasters, commercial broadcasters and public service broadcasters. Most news is disseminated by legacy media organizations uh, to a very large extent on uh, offline platforms like print, uh, and most importantly, uh, linear television, but also across their many digital offerings, where in country after country we can see that the companies that dominate the, the sector of online news provision are the same companies that dominate offline news provision. Overwhelmingly, pure players play a very small role in most countries as providers of online news, while they are, of course, important in sharing news like Facebook and searching for, Google, uh, for, for news like, like Google. And finally, um, in 2012, the majority of media use for most people in most countries, including countries like this one, or Scandinavia, where internet penetration is about 90%, is still, quote unquote, old media. We spend far more time watching television than we spend uh, browsing the web. Um, and when we look, we look at news provisions narrowly, uh, there is even a case to be made that more is spent reading news in print newspapers than online. Though the reach isn't as broad as it had been, the depth, if you will, of consumption is still um, dominated by uh, old media. So the three um, big questions I wanted to tackle first are, are sort of statements or questions that are often raised about developments in media uh, today. Are we seeing the end of the mass audience? Um, is the internet killing the newspaper? And are our media systems becoming Americanized? And, and just to sort of narrow that down, the last question, if you will. The the question here is not whether American content plays a large role in media around the world, it clearly does, nor whether American uh, norms and practices have influenced professional journalism around the world it clearly has, but the question of whether the institutional preconditions for professional journalism, that is the media industries in other countries, are becoming more like the one we see in America, the structure we see in America. So I'll examine each of these in, in, in turn and deliver sort of a version, if you will, of a bit longer report and that has um, a lot more detail to it, obviously. Is this the end of the mass audience? Uh, this is really a question about television more than anything else, and, and the, sort of, the typical academic question is it's complicated. Uh, yes and no. Clearly, many individual audiences are shrinking, and there are more of them. So all the, sort of the, the main television channels are leading uh, viewers to niche offerings. We see this in every developed democracy that, um, that the main mass audiences are eroding, and the number of niche audiences are increasing. There are some exceptions to this around the world. In, in Brazil, extraordinarily, the TV network, TV Globo still draws more than 40% of an audience share every night, which is absolutely unheard of in other countries. In the US, for instance, the three largest TV networks combined draws about 20%. Of the audience. So it's extraordinary for a large country like Brazil, a, a, a diverse country like Brazil, to have a kind of share of one. But in most countries, the broad story is that the large audiences are shrinking and more and more niche audiences are, are popping up. Most media users, if you look at it from the point of view of the individual, still have fairly constrained media r- routines or circumscribed media routines that we have a few outlets that we choose. The world is our oyster, but we have a few favorites we use. And this is a classic in the study of television, for instance, that the number of channels people actually view increases more slowly than the number of channels that they could view when they buy satellite ca- cable or, or digital television and whatnot. So but even though there is this fragmentation going on, when we look away from sort of the routine audience, the daily, day in, day out routine audience for particular programs and channels, we still see that extraordinary media events draw what <coughs> are the largest audience we've seen in media history. Um, the most prominent examples of this, of course, are sporting events, as they always are, the Olympics, the World Cup, and the soccer. But also other uh, media events, like um, in this country, royal weddings or anniversaries that draw absolutely extraordinary audiences across platforms, but primarily to content produced by traditional legacy media companies. But they can also be political events. So for instance, a very recent example, the presidential debate between Mitt Romney and Barack Obama in the US uh, just uh, last week. Drew 70 million viewers. It's the largest audience for a presidential televised debate since 1980. And that was in, that's in this very fragmented media audience, in which we saw this extraordinarily large audience for one debate. If we look narrowly at news provision, beyond sort of the, the everyday audience and the media events, it's also the case that the biggest news audiences are bigger than they ever were. I mean, in part because so many news organizations are cutting down their budget, their investments in content. The, the, the producers who, whose content is syndicated around the world reach more and more people. Associated Press, probably the most powerful example of this, Associated Press claims that they reach half the world's population on any given day with content, three billion people. But you can also look at individual news outlets. This doesn't go for every newspaper, but several newspapers in many countries around the world have a larger audience today than, than they ever have. The Guardian is an example in this country, um, because I've like, spent a lot of time in New York. The New York Times is probably my own favorite example. And it really is an extraordinary story. The New York Times, in the 80s, started using satellite printing to reach beyond the island of Manhattan. Really, it is a regional, a local newspaper, almost like a, 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 a sort of a community newspaper for Manhattanites. Or was, at least. Started using satellite printing to, to reach out across the U.S. Um, in the 80s. Uh, to expand its readership. But it was nothing like what we see today. The the New York Times today has, in combination of digital and print subscribers, 1.5 million paying subscribers. Uh, They have six million, on average, six million unique visitors to their website every day. Uh, The content uh, is syndicated in two dozen newspapers around the world. And, uh, through, and, and, and 6 million readers in 32 countries read the, the New York Times weekly supplement that's quoted by newspapers around the world. The audience the New York Times reaches today is larger than it has ever been in its history. So the largest news audiences for individual organizations and contributors is arguably bigger than they ever were. Second big question, has the internet killed the newspaper or is it killing the newspaper? Well, this is a fairly controversial state to take. I would argue mostly no. Um, Though with the important uh, caveat, if you will, that the internet certainly has severely challenged the profitability of a very particular kind of newspaper. Um, first and foremost, the American um, metropolitan monopoly newspaper, which was phenomenally profitable till the 90s, till the late 90s, because they had a monopoly in local advertising, very high circulation, low cover prices to entice readers to buy the product. And then they ratchet up monopoly rates on the the advertising. Newspapers in America, till fairly recently, made 25% profit margins, almost unheard of in the rest of the business world. Those days are gone. And of course, those companies are severely challenged today because they have taken on obligations, financial obligations, that were premised on this profitability, this profit margin that they had till very recently. They have debt, they have taken on debt that they have a hard time servicing now, they have pension obligations. Uh, to employees, and former retired employees. And they have, um, they're probably traded. They have shareholder expectations to deal with. And the share value of these companies have completely collapsed. Most of these companies are worth less than a tenth of what they were worth just five or six years ago. But it's important to keep in mind that this was never the paradigmatic form of the newspaper, even in the Western world. European newspapers were never this profitable, with a few exceptions, were never this profitable as the American metropolitan monopoly newspaper. Um, and even in the U.S., where the crisis in the newspaper sector is far more severe than it has been in any other Western European, co- sorry, Western country, more newspapers closed in the U.S. in the 1980s and in the 1990s than it's closed in the 2000s. So this idea that it's is killing the newspaper is, uh, I think, a problematic and polemical notion, if you will. Now, obviously, it does prevent, present the newspaper industry with a number of challenges, that it, and it has accelerated. A longer trend, which is one of decline in readership and also in the relative share of advertising for the newspaper industry. And this, of course, is a challenge. is a challenge of management of decline from a, from a business point of view that these companies um, face. And it is an accelerated decline now because there's an even fier- fiercer competition for, for our attention as audiences, but also for advertisers and their spend. But it is not a new challenge. It has been accentuated by the internet, but it's not a new challenge. I mean, newspaper circulation in this country has been declining since 1945. Newspaper circulation in the US has been declining since 1945. In France, there was a brief boom after the war, but it's been pretty stagnant since the 50s and 60s. And importantly, um, there is still a role for print. People mix and match media depending on their own preferences, and those preferences include platforms. I think I can say this uh, as a fairly young man. I think I think I can say this is not a question of nostalgia uh, or being sentimental about dead trees. It is simply an empirical observation that the consumer is king in a high choice environment, and millions of people every day make the decision to buy a newspaper, and that is a decision that that we still that we need to take into account when we when we understand developments in, in, in the media sector. Um, in particular, a particularly powerful illustration of this, if you will, is the case of insulin. Um, where um, free sheets were introduced in the late 90s, early 2000s, and the introduction of free sheets means that the historical high point of newspaper circulation in Italy, relative to population, is 2007. That's the highest level of newspaper circulation ever reached in Italy, is 2007. It has been declining since, but it's not below the levels of the 50s or the 60s in Italy. And there are examples of paid print newspapers being launched. I mean, John knows more about this than I do, but Il Fato, for instance, a new title that was launched in 2009. Is using print as the tentpole and revenue engine to fund a multi-platform strategy around that brand. But the print product is the centerpiece of that strategy, and it's a newspaper that launched in 2009. Are we seeing our media systems becoming more Americanized? This is then sort of big questions I want to briefly uh, touch on. And again, we're not talking about content, we're not talking about professional norms, we're talking about the structure of the media industry around the world. And this is an assumption that's made often by Americans, but also by others, that we are seeing Americanization of our media and industries. Um, there are some things that have been happening in the US that are also happening elsewhere. Audience fragmentation in television, the rise of paid TV, erosion of print audiences, the dominance of of, uh, legacy media players in online news provision, and of course, the increase in internet access and use. We see this across the world, but that's not Americanization. That's a parallel displacement of all media systems amongst the affluent democracies. And we see, very importantly, very persistent particularities. I mean, to put it, sort to boil it down to the essence of it, almost to a banality, history matters. I mean, inherited levels of newspaper circulation or policy choices like public service broadcasting, license fee funding for public service broadcasting, matter hugely in understanding where our media systems are today and where they're heading. To take one um, example, which is a slightly polemical one because sort of linear projections into the future are often problematic. But if the decline in newspaper circulation over the last 10 years, if we project that into the future, it'll take 70 years before newspaper circulation in Finland, for instance, reach the level of where France is today. And it'll take another 20 years before it reaches the level where Italy is today. And there are newspapers in Italy. They're not as big and important and powerful and profitable as they've been in the U.S. and a few other countries, but they're there and they're important. Um, and we can see regional differences too. I mean, take the U.S. where it spent a considerable amount of time. If the current decline in circulation continues into the future, it'll take 20 years before states like New York, that have a sort of a median level of circulation, are at the level of where states like Arizona or Georgia are at today. And there are newspapers in Georgia and Arizona. So I'm not, I don't want to suggest that there are not serious challenges. I'm just saying there is, a, there is a historical legacy that is not disappearing, it's not evaporating overnight. Importantly, um, thirdly, there are new peculiarities. There is not simply this homogenization, nor simply the persistence of differences. There are also new differences that are emerging. Uh, a powerful example of this is the, uh, is the booming of nonprofit journalism in the U.S., which is not seen anywhere else uh, in the Western world, least I don't know about emerging economies, but I would be surprised to see it there, which is the product of a particular ecology of philanthropic funding that exists in the U.S. but does not exist in many other countries. So there are new differences that are emerging. Another important new difference, while well, it's not new in many countries, but it's new in the U.S., is the re-emergence of what we might call the political proprietor. As news become less commercially profitable, it may become, um, shall we say, appealing or interesting for other purposes. So, um, uh, you know, the, the classic example in Europe would be France or Italy. But in France, for instance, every single nationally distributed paid print newspaper in France that deals with news is owned either by a political or social organization, or by a large industrial conglomerate with regulation-sensitive businesses, or by billionaires with political interests or sympathies every single nationally distributed newspaper in France. And we see this emerging in the U.S. too, where conservative billionaires have pulled up newspaper properties recently. Those were some of the big questions. Now I'll talk in equally brief and condensed terms about some of the big trends of what's actually going on then within these broad areas of media use, media markets, and media policy in these uh, countries that I've been looking at. First, media use. The first observation is some of us live in the future. Um, a subset of the population uh, have, um, fully embrace the opportunities of the digital ecology, uh, smartphones, tablets, uh, anything, anywhere, anytime. And they live uh, almost literally in a fantasy world in which everything is freely available at any time of their own choosing. Um, because that content continues to be subsidized by revenues generated on legacy platforms. So print newspapers, the profits from the print newspaper pays for the digital product that is essentially given away. The same thing with world classes, who put their content for free online. There is very little money to, to be made online, but yet this content has been shoveled out for us to enjoy for free. It is a fantasy world, it is not sustainable, and it, is, it will have to change, and it is changing. We see a, a, a rapid, if you will, um, a rise of paywalls around the world from 2010 onwards when continental European newspapers started pioneering this again, and 2011-12 we've seen it in the UK and the US as well. Um, it's a retrofitted future. And this, uh, for those who are sort of sci-fi buffs in the room, I'd say we're, we don't live in sort of the Star Wars, Star Wars world in which we've had a radical, radical break with the past and live in a totally new environment. It's more like a Blade Runner environment where we can still see the remnants of the society we're leaving behind. Um, if you look at, first, in the US, one of the countries in which the digital uh, revolution has had a part, the, the largest impact on the media um, sector, um, even there, um, Interestingly, the so-called early adopters or digital natives uh, that are uh, the most frequent users of news online are also read more print newspapers than the rest of the population. People mix and match on the basis of their own personal preferences, and they uh, also use uh, legacy media. Legacy media are under pressure because of the uh, increase in choice, but it's still part and parcel of everyday media use for millions of people, including people who have embraced the digital revolution. If you take the US as an example, if you take 10 Americans, um, two of those Americans are not going to get any news on a regular basis. Um, one of those 10 Americans will uh, only get news from uh, offline sources, so print newspapers and, and television. Um, one of those Americans will only get news from digital sources, um, but the remaining will mix. They will use both legacy media and uh, so-called new media, digital media very various sources. The paradigmatic form of media used today, arguably, is something like someone using their smartphone while watching television. And of course, um, this future, both the, sort of the, the vintage, the, sort of the, the distilled digital future, but also the retrofitted version, is not even the distributed. This is most important, of course, across borders, and that the emerging economies, plainly, are not as, long, as far along in terms of access as uh, more affluent democracies. Um, but even within the world of affluent democracies, there is a, a um, stubborn 10% minority left that are not uh, that do not have uh, internet access. And while the there was rapid growth in access for the for the period roughly from the late 90s to the uh, the the around 2007-2008, actually that is stagnant, and it is not clear that there is a situation around the corner in which we will have universal access to unlimited. Uh, high-speed broadband. There is something like 10% of the population, not only older people, who are not uh, connected. Turn to media markets. Um, the first point, and in a way this should be absolutely terrifying for those who work for legacy media companies, is that the cyclical changes, that is recessions, the early recession out of the dot-com boom in 2000, and then now the recession 2007, 2008 onwards, have hurt legacy media companies far more than the internet has, when you look at the revenue structure. The decline kind of advertising that's driven by cycles in the economy, has had a much more severe impact on the business of legacy media companies than the migration to digital. Why is that terrifying? Well, it's terrifying because the audience, though as I suggested, it hasn't moved wholesale online, the audience has actually moved faster online than advertisers have. And over time, a rule of thumb is that advertisers, of course, follow with audiences. Those are that's the people they want to reach. So the real structural uh, readjustment is ahead. It hasn't happened yet. And the majority of the losses of revenue we've seen uh, to some extent in commercial broadcasting, but much more so in the newspaper sector across the, the, the Western world, is driven by the financial crisis. It's a much larger component of this, uh, of, this, of this crisis so far than the digital transition which lurks around the corner. Obviously newspapers have lost particular kinds of advertising, classified advertising, real estate, automobile. Um, jobs to specialized online sites that has had a very particular impact on, uh, on that sector. Um, and TV is next in that the, the, uh, so far the limitations of, of bandwidth and the low quality of streaming services meant that linear television still gets a much better experience. I think all of us know this, that even the BBC iPlayer with a good broadband connection isn't as good as your, t- as your digital um, receiver in terms of, of watching television. You don't get the same quality image. You don't get the same kind of consistency in service. You'll get freezes, you'll get buffering, whatnot, even with good broadband. Um, So TV is next in terms of really coming to terms with the structural part of this adjustment, which uh, newspapers are only um, beginning to deal with. Finally, and this, I think, should be particularly terrifying for the journalists in the room. Um, I think I've moderated my optimism since John and I last spoke. Historically, or in the post-war period, there's been a, a connection between the total amount of money that's spent on media by consumers and by advertisers, and the money that's invested in journalism. And that link existed in particular in the newspaper industry, where the product, if you will, to use that crass term, was a bundle that had all sorts of stuff in it that included news. And if that, that, that bundle with all that stuff made more money, more money was spent on news as well. And often those companies were also run by journalists uh, who, who liked to invest in news. And in commercial television, in many countries, there, was public, there were public service obligations that were politically imposed on broadcasters in return for the spectrum that they got, the scarce spectrum that they got access to. Uh, they were um, obliged to invest in news, or at least felt it was in their own interest if they, if they wanted their license renewed to invest in news. Um, but this, these links are coming apart. The newspaper bundle is disintegrating before our eyes uh, as people pick and choose what they want to read. Uh, instead of, of paying for a bundle with with a package of information, uh, commercial broadcasting free to air is losing ground. Pay television, pay television. This this link was never established politically and doesn't exist economically. So if you look at very large pay television broadcasters like BskyB in this country or Sky Italia or the, or the American equivalents, they have they make serious investments in news, but as a proportion of their revenue, it is insignificant compared to the kind of investment the newspaper companies make. Uh, So while we see actually overall controlling for for recessions uh, and cyclical changes in the economy, we see growth in the media sector. People spend, consumers spend more money on media, advertisers spend more money on advertising. There are no or few reasons to expect that this will fund more journalism in the future. And that is a historical change uh, that has happened in how the media business operates. The final uh, area I'll speak about um, before it turns into big picture um, inferences or conclusions from this sort of around the media world in 80 days with is media policy in the media sector are profound political businesses I mean they are road costing is regulated in every country uh, the the newspaper industry likes to think itself of itself as separate from politics but in most countries in the Western world in particular they benefit from a number of indirect subsidies VHC exemptions exemptions from labor laws exemptions from Uh, enforcement of of, of certain competition, uh, areas of competition, uh, antitrust legislation, so on and so forth. Um, And yet, arguably media policy has not changed the pace at which the media industry has changed. Information policy broadly conceived, broadband, information society programs, the rollout of, of the digital economy, has been very high priority for politicians around the world. Very large investments have been made, broadband infrastructures and training, uh, in, uh, in, in in trying to in, in enthuse the citizens to go online so that you can have interactions as a taxpayer, via uh, our website rather than time-consuming, expensive interactions with someone who actually works for the government. Um, but um, it's not clear why those programs have often been rhetorically linked to journalism and the dissemination of news. It's not clear that this has actually helped the news industry in any meaningful way. This is worth keeping in mind, as Brazil and India and other emerging economies are right now making very large investments in broadband rollout, that these things may well, as, uh, as those in favor of them argue, help the economy and they may well help society in all sorts of different ways, but there are a few reasons to expect that they will help commercial news producers um, to, uh, um, to do their business, if you will. Media policy more narrowly conceived as public service broadcasting and uh, indirect forms of public support for private sector media. Have been a very low priority in most countries, not France and Italy, in which there have been fairly high charged battles around media regulation and media subsidies. But in most of the Western world, and also to some extent Brazil and India, media policy narrowly conceived um, has not been a high priority uh, political area, and we've seen very little reform. We actually have essentially the regulatory framework and support measures in place today for our media that we had in 2000 in most countries. Though the industry has changed. Very dramatically over, the last, over that period, the, the 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 most fundamental forms of public policy intervention remain frozen in a late late 20th century form, even though we are well into the 21st century. Adjacent policy areas, uh, there are all sorts of policy that intersects with the media. I mean, the journalists in the room and the people who work in the media business are well aware of this, but the rest of us may not think about these things. There are all sorts of things: uh, market concentration uh, rec- uh, regulation, antitrust rules. Freedom of information um, legislation, um, tax codes for charities, all sorts of legislation have consequences for what kind of media business you can run, what kind of nonprofit you might be able to establish. And these areas um, have not been subject to any kind of systematic and rigorous review to see whether they need any tweaking to enable journalism to continue to thrive in the 21st century. Um, examples are manifold in this country just a few recent examples the, um, the OFT uh, took a very strong line on the merger of a few regional newspapers in Kent and South uh, East England uh, arguing this would constitute a local monopoly whereas clearly the, the B B acquisition was not seen as a major problem until things blew up in the face of news corporation for other reasons. Uh, so there are questions around of uh, market regulation whether whether we are up to date and what constitutes a media market today. Um, other examples in this country, nonprofit journalism. The Charities Commission has not recognized journalism uh, as, a, as a, um, a non-profit endeavor yet. The Bureau of Investigative um, Journalism has been waiting for two years for approval before they can start fundraising as a nonprofit. Um, so there are all sorts of areas in which um, there is a real need for, a, for a review, if you will, of, um, of media policy. I'm gonna whisk through um, in an equally high tempo as a condensed form, some general observation about what what does this mean? I I started with this proposition that the reason we should care about journalism as an industry in a a more profound way than we care about furniture, manufacturing as an industry, not simply as a question of jobs and profits as important and as those concerns are, but as a question of democracy, of where our societies are heading. Um, What does it all mean? Well, it means that in terms of the industry, Dramatic as the changes have been over the last 10 years, and those of you who work in the media sector can kind affirm of, kind of, kind of that, that they have indeed been dramatic, we are at the very beginning of this transition. I mean, the real shift hasn't happened because that is uh, will come in the form of a cohort effect in media use as older media, uh, as mortality takes a toll, and older media users and a new generation that has grown up in a digital environment. Um, becomes more representative of the general population as forward, as advertisers move more wholesale to what is called contentless advertising on online sites for instance and thus indirectly subsidizing even less journalism um, and um, hopefully as media policies adjusted to the new reality of the 21st century. If you want to go a sort of a grand historical parallel um, and say that you know, the introduction of the internet protocol in the early 80s is sort of the hour times equivalent of Gutenberg's uh, movable type a printing workshop in, in, in Germany in the, in the in the early 15th century you know then we are 30 years into this I mean we're about as far into the digital revolution as Europe was into the printing revolution in the late 15th century a lot of things have changed a lot of things had changed at the end of the 15th century in Europe but a lot more changes around the corner this is a sort of a if you will um, a slightly polemical point, more towards my academic colleagues, if you will. There is a tendency to sort of mobilize these, this sense of urgency, if you will, which is right. There is a sense of urgency; something needs to be done if we want to proactively shape our media environments of the future. But there is always this appeal to the critical juncture, this idea that we are at a crossroads, uh, at a crossroads, in which paths are open to us. I'm afraid it's not um, very plausible this is the situation we find ourselves, and I think this it will be a prolonged period of change, and that's also what the analogy to the printing revolution is meant to evoke, Um, that as it took uh, decades or even centuries for that to fully unfold, we should expect it to take decades or even centuries before the full consequences of the digital revolution become evident. As it took uh, decades for broadcasting to find its feet, radio broadcasting first in the 30s and television broadcasting in the 50s, and as it took decades for the newspaper industry to reconsolidate after the emergence of these new media, the crisis that American newspapers suffered in the 30s with the combination of the rise of radio and the Great Depression is directly comparable to the one they face today. Actually, the revenue declines are almost exactly the same, about 40% in, here in terms of per capita revenues. So this will take years. This is no comfort, um, but. That's also an opportunity, because it means there is time. Um, not time to sort of sit and ponder um, what, want, uh, what, what should be done, uh, if you will. Well, there was also time for that. That's more for my vocation, if you will, for, for the journalists and, and media uh, industri- industry um, uh, managers and media policy makers and whatnot. But that there is a time, if you will, for entrepreneurs, uh, for journalists and others who want to in- engage proactively in shaping the future of this uh, environment. It is in flux. And there is an opportunity now to think about where we are heading. Um, where are we heading? Well, without a change of course, the direction of travel is the one that's been for 20 years, since before the internet. Before the internet became a mass medium, if you will, or a widely used platform. It is a direction in which we'll have further fragmentation of most media audiences, the proliferation of initial audiences. Uh, we, have a, um, um, we will have more and more media, uh, more and more platforms, more and more offerings, and whatnot, but the, where the link between um, media, uh, the media economy, and, and journalistic, professional journalistic news production is is, uh, is eroding or even broken, so it'll mean less news. Um, not for the few who care deeply about news; those who are willing to pay. Uh, there is a rise of elite news, specialized information services for financial industry professionals, for lobbyists, and whatnot, but also for just for affluent news consumers. The Economist is doing well. The Financial Times is doing well. The New York Times have lost about a third of their revenue, but they seem to have found a path forward, at least, for building a global company out of what was a local newspaper. Um, But less news for the less interested, less affluent general audience, who are also drifting away, if you will, from news provision. Their public service um, and the commercial public service providers remain the main sort of, you know, um, sort of mass audience, if you will, for news, but those are eroding, and it's not clear that there's anything ahead to replace them. In emerging economies, the story is more upbeat, uh, In both in Brazil and in India, economic growth, uh, the growth of uh, low-emotional costs, if you will, or people who are entering the formal economy, is fueling tremendous growth in the news industry. Um, how much it benefits professional journalism, varies somewhat in India, growth is pretty much across the board, um, double-digit growth in much of the newspaper industry, for instance. Um, whereas in Brazil, elite newspapers like Fallout, for instance, and El Pado, face some of the same challenges that newspapers face in the West, in that most of their readers have broadband access. They have mobile uh, devices and whatnot, and they are having to readjust their, their business model. But in the grander scheme of things, what we see in emerging economies like Brazil and India is that because there is money to be made from producing news and other forms <laughs> of content, for these newly affluent, or rather modestly affluent, but newly um, uh, more affluent Brazilians and Indians, there is growth, and then more and more people are getting news that is made for them, and that is, of course, a profoundly democratizing development in the news sector in these countries. Now, we've been accustomed, at least in the West, to think of news primarily as either a question of commercial news providers, or to some extent, in those countries that have it, as something that is provided by public service Uh, license fee funding, um, or other forms of public service media, of course, it is the case in several countries in Western Europe, France visibly springs to mind, but also very much in the working economies, that there are other forms of news production that are very relevant, namely, um, news production that is funded by political interests, or, or corporate interests, that are not about making money off the news content, but about making money off the power or the appearance of influence that it gives to control, subsidize, run, and operate news operations. This has been very important in France for a very long time. Uh, it is very important in both in Brazil and India, where many news companies are very tightly tied, tied in with politicians and large industrial conglomerates. Um, and there are reasons to at least ask, uh, in a speculative fashion, whether that might also be the future for parts of the media industry in those few uh, rain-swept uh, countries, huddled around the North Atlantic, the US, the UK, the Scandinavia, a few of the German-speaking countries, in which for In a historical perspective, a relatively brief period of time, it was actually profitable to produce professional news. As that um, time, that brief period in which that was profitable, seems to be slipping away, will we see a resurgence of the political proprietor, even in countries in which that figure has been a fairly, um, shall we say, uh, only a part of the market in this country? Of course, there are examples of it, there have become more examples of it, there probably will uh, come more in the future. Will we see that? be a larger and larger part of the media environment, even of the affluent democracies in the future, well, at least in the US, my sort of adopted home, we certainly see see indications that that is happening. Conservative billionaires um, like Douglas Manchester in San Diego, uh, Philip Manchester from uh, Denver, have pulled up newspaper companies recently and are unapologetically using these to advance their political agendas, but also their commercial agendas. Uh, Douglas Manchester is a real estate developer, owning the San Diego Union Tribune, or UT San Diego as it's called now, uh, and the most important uh, community we- in the newspaper in that city. gives him tremendous power to influence decisions that have immediate consequences for his main business as a hotel owner, as a real estate developer. And of course we see this in Brazil and India too, this is a very real question whether the very large growth we see in the media industry in Brazil and India is big enough to make it more attractive to run your newspaper, or your television news channel, or your news website as a news service oriented towards the citizen than it is to run it as um, a form of PR on behalf of a real estate developer, on behalf of a mining magnate, on behalf of someone active in telecommunication or other regulation-sensitive industries. So with that, um, I will end, and thank you for your attention.